difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. For this pairing, we're veering off formula a little bit, but not in an unprecedented way. We did do Westworld a little bit ago, because we're pairing a classic movie with a new television show. That's right. We're looking at something native to the television screens you watch at home. Genevieve, as our resident TV expert, why don't you introduce what we'll be talking about? In the next two episodes, we'll be visiting a pair of wastelands that might be saved by the intervention of a child. Our first step is 2006's Children of Men, which is set in the England of 2027, albeit one that's been on a different course than the England we've known since 2009. It's then that, with no explanation, women stopped being capable of bearing children, a development that's plunged the globe into disaster, madness, and in Britain at least, an oppressive totalitarianism. Clive Owen stars as Theo, a former idealist and political activist turned full-time cynic. But when Julian, played by Julianne Moore, the wife he hasn't seen in years, draws him into the activities of a resistance group called the Fishes, he's clued into a secret that might save the world, the existence of Key, played by Claire Hope Ashity, a woman who's eight months pregnant. We were inspired to revisit Children of Men by The Last of Us, a new HBO series adapting a video game of the same name. Neil Druckmann, who wrote the game and co-created the series, has repeatedly cited Children of Men as an influence, and it's easy to see why. Pedro Pascal stars as a hardened and seemingly hard-hearted survivor named Joel, who's charged with escorting Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, across a wasteland filled with zombie-like monsters. The reason? She's immune to infection and might hold the key for a cure. So we'll kick things off this week with Children of Men, and just as we get through that harrowing film and reach the glimmer of hope, at the end, we'll plunge back into the grimness with The Last of Us. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, four months, 20 days, 16 hours, and eight minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. Have you been? Let's start with two quotes from Children of Men director Alfonso Cuaron taken from a 2017 interview with Vulture's Abraham Josephine Reisman. It's a long, digressive, compelling interview. We'll link to it on the show page. Quote 1. Children of Men is not a prophetic piece. It's just a compound of studies and essays of other people around the time when it was made. Quote 2. And this is Koran himself quoting his longtime director of photography, Emmanuel Lubeski. We cannot allow one single frame of this film to go without a comment on the state of things. Both Koran and Lubeski are saying out loud what usually goes unspoken or even unnoticed about post-apocalyptic fiction. It's not really about the future at all. Reisman conducted the interview with Koran in 2017 amidst a resurgence of interest in the film, which flopped on its first release in the wake of Brexit and Donald Trump's election. But for Koran, any predictive power was unplanned. 
He saw the film as an act of extrapolation of trends, of the migrant crisis that was provoking a nativist backlash throughout Europe, even as the bodies of immigrants washed up on the shore, of a capitalist system seen in the film using its persuasive tools to market a suicide drug, of a class divide that was growing more pronounced, of a post-9-11 unease that refused to lift, of terrorism, of wars that refused to end, of systematic torture, of everything alarming about the aughts. The sudden onset of human infertility depicted in the film didn't cause any of these problems. It only intensified them. Per Lubeski's demand, the film is rich in details of its nightmarish world, even when it doesn't dwell on them. The screenplay, loosely adapted from a novel by P.D. James and written by Koran and a long list of other writers with contributions from star Clive Owen, makes passing references to various penitent cults that have sprung up and allusions to disasters in places like Seattle and New York without offering much in the way of detail. The backdrop is filled with advertisements for animal clothes and headlines alluding to the death of someone named Test Tube Daisy. The film builds its world through hints and suggestions, but it's not hard to fill in the blanks. It looks like the world we know, or the world we knew then, only more disastrous, as if the fertility crisis let loose the worst that could happen on every possible front. Descending into cynicism, as Theo has done sometime before the events of the film, feels in some ways like the only sane response. But what good does that do? It's certainly not the path followed by Jasper Palmer, played by Michael Caine, a former political cartoonist who now spends his days tending to his wife, an investigative reporter who survived torture at the hands of the government, but emerged catatonic from the experience. Jasper also grows and smokes a lot of weed, which doesn't hurt his mood either. But when Jasper delivers a mid-film bit of philosophizing about how the world is torn between faith and chance, it doesn't sound like Pothead rambling so much as the film's thesis statement. Children and Men is ultimately a film about hope sometimes faint, glimmering hope, that the world can be made better through our own actions, and it holds on to that belief through the final scene that seemingly confirms its wisdom. But it's a hard-won sort of hope, and it's a rough road getting to that glimmer. At the end of the aughts, I put together a list of my favorite films of the decade. Children of Men was number one on that list, even though I'd only seen it once. In fact, I didn't revisit the film until rewatching it for this podcast. I loved it, but it also scared me. The completeness of its vision of a plausible post-cataclysmic world combined with Koran's white-knuckle filmmaking left a deep impression, but all those things also unnerved me. Besides, moments of that film had seared itself in my memory, from the trip to a Battersea power station complete with the pig balloons that graced it on the cover of Pig Floyd's Animals that has since been turned into a private living space slash storehouse for artistic treasures, to the sound of gunfire resuming immediately after combatants on both sides stood in awe at the sight of a baby, many of them having never seen one before. It might be an overused word, but it's a powerful film. That makes Children of Men's willingness to come down on the side of faith in the face of awful chance all the more effective. The film ends with Key and a dying Theo becoming a kind of modern Mary and Joseph, but they're protecting a child not born of a virgin. Key lasts at that idea. And England's salvation, however intense its efforts to close its borders, seems to have arrived in the form of a black immigrant's child. Maybe that girl will grow up in a better world than the one she entered. In some ways, it would be impossible not to. Here's one last Quran quote from that Vulture interview. Look, I'm absolutely pessimistic about the present, but I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm a pessimist about the present because I know my generation, but every time I see younger generations, I'm hopeful. That's the word, hope. There you go.
She belongs here. And this baby is the flag that could unite us all. We never use this baby for political purposes. My baby is not a flag. Make it public. What? What? Excuse me. You should make it public. Well, you saw the telly. She's about to be very public. Doesn't matter. She's pregnant. Oh, right. And then the government will say, well, we, we, we were wrong. Fuji's are humans, too. Yeah, well, whatever's going on, whatever your political ideas are, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Oh, come on. She needs a doctor. You really don't get Look, the government will take the baby and parade a posh black English lady as the mother. Nobody's taking my baby. We all know this government would never acknowledge the first human birth in 18 years from a Fuji. I wanted... Fuji. This is a film, as Quran argues, and I, I support above, it's drawn from 2006. How does it play 17 years later? Well, I mean, it's still a spectacular film on a technical basis, on a, a performance basis, on a conceptual basis. But in terms of what the question I think that you're asking, uh, just in terms of how is it dealing, how does it, it face up to the politics of the time? Boy, it sure seems prophetic uh, all over again still. I mean, I, I think the divisions that we're seeing in this film in terms of Political parties uh, demonizing immigrants and like sort of using them as a flag to control the populace is just a perennial uh, political problem that we're going to see over and over again. And the sense of kind of uh, exhaustion and, and frustration and uh, helplessness that we see in a lot of the population is, that just saturates this movie, you know, the sense of terrible things are happening all around us and we have to put up with them because they're, we've been told that they're the only way forward and we, we don't have an opposing uh, view or the ability to, to change the circumstances we're in. Like all of that feels really, really familiar. So does the yeah. so does the guy who's resisting it all uh, via you know macro doses of marijuana, <laughs> which in the in our increasingly legalized times, boy, that kind of seems familiar too. Yeah, it, I mean, it is um, quite resonant to the point where where uh, it's only when the film gets really specific with its visual illusions where it's like oh hey guantanamo bay mm -hmm. <laughs> i see i see the I, I suddenly you're sort of thrust back into the context in which this film was made and, and the type of uh phenomenon that it's, that it's referencing but i think the one really resonant part of it for me and this will come up i guess in the last episode as well but like is just the idea that that when something catastrophic happens on a global scale it is not our instinct as as a species to come together and, and deal with it uh, in a positive way. It, it it really fractures society and make and we have a way of of making a bad situation worse. And that was something that kind of came to mind and really sort of justified the way the world kind of the, the way the, the world of this film sort of remade itself, you know, as a result of this disaster. Setting aside all that like timeliness, which I, I agree with what everyone's saying, like as far as, you know, what I thought revisiting this film, I thought the same thing. I think every time I rewatch this film, which is that this movie rips like I love, <laughs> I love like just like on a like, you know, it, yes, like there's a lot to say about like what it tells us about our time now and everything that you talked about very eloquently in, in, in the keynote, but just like on a pure filmmaking 
level like every time i sit down to watch this i forget that it's under two hours because it feels Mm -hmm. like a movie that should be like three it just like it gets so much in there there's such a wide range of tones uh just like the first couple scenes the amount of like world building that's established in just like very economical ways it's a funny movie it's it makes you cry like it has it has like incredible action set pieces it has like great just like two-hander conversations this movie has everything i feel like stefan on saturday night live (laughs) talking about this movie so just setting aside all that i just like kind of want to appreciate on a visceral level what an enjoyable film this is It, it does zip along too like as i said before i didn't uh hadn't watched in a while but it's like you know i was watching it this time i was like oh wait we're already at the school i mean it, it really like we're in the home stretch i guess but but boy it doesn't seem like that much time has passed i mean the thing that i always remember about this movie when i haven't seen it in a long time is the long takes and clive owen's performance mm-hmm. but every time i rewatch it I, i'm just i'm struck all over again as genevieve just said by that introduction that opening sequence and how much it tells you about uh, Clive Owen's character without spelling anything out without you know there's no there's no narration there's not even conversation just the image of him kind of fighting his way through a crowd of people who are mesmerized by a joint tragedy so he can get his coffee and then sort of glance disinterestedly at the thing that they're all collectively mourning and then walk straight back out just untouched by it and a little disgusted by it And then there's an explosion and and you see that his attitude almost certainly just saved his life. And then a minute later, he's at work and pretending that he's far more struck by this tragedy than he actually is. So he can skive off work. Like that is a beautiful piece of like concision and showing by telling by showing. And uh, just it's a really clever way to introduce who he is, how he relates to the world and what he's willing to do to get what he wants. I love his boss's reaction to begging off work. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't, doesn't buy it for a second, but like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> yep, pretty much. <laughs> I also really like in those early scenes, the, the early introduction of Quietus, the uh, assisted suicide pharmaceutical that is uh, uh, notably in the background in a couple scenes, just in terms of establishing the level of theocynicism, but also that there is still something keeping him hanging on, you know, and and keeping all these people still hanging on who haven't succumbed to the quietus yet. So I think that is just sort of another layer of nuance that gets kind of built in there right from the beginning. One of the ways you find out about Quietus is just through screens behind people, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting way this film has dated since uh, 2006. A lot of the imagery used to convey, by the way, this is the future, like even though everything is is run down and tatty, we want to communicate that technology has moved forward. So you see things like uh, screens on newsstands that are doing a sort of like animated video version of the news or just like very subtle, but very much ahead of 2006 kinds of like like large scale video screens going on. And it, it just looks t- like today now, like things that were were very subtle in 2006 about letting you know sort of what time period this was set in and kind of what the technological level of the world was now just kind of looks like the background of everything. Like the most futuristic cars still look futuristic, but everything else like just looks pretty contemporary. 
Uh, one of the production designers on the on the Blu-ray special features talked about how the the guiding principle was to maybe move technology up to 2010, and then mm-hmm. kind of like it would have stopped there because things start breaking down. Yeah, except you have these like weird little like motorized rickshaw type of thing. I don't know what those are, but that one thing I was thinking about with this movie and in, in its depiction of London is like it, it's just there's just as kind of a fuck it attitude with regards to like climate change and, things, like, and just the general maintenance of the planet. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, okay, we, the apocalypse is here. We can see the end now. So we can just, the streets could just be filled with just smoke and garbage and it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Between that sort of like breakdown in society, the, the breakdown in people caring and the kind of ubiquitous uh, promise of quietus and, you know, just maybe, maybe do everybody a favor and kill yourself. Uh, I, I keep expecting to see signs in the background that say, you know, keep calm and don't bother carrying on. It, it's just, it's a very, it's a very British apocalypse, you know? <laughs> but, they're, they're, but they're the ones thriving too. Right? Yeah. I was, I was just going to say it's, it is only within sort of the bubble, the glimpses we get, not even glimpses, I guess we spend quite a lot of time in Bex Hill, but like that, you know, we, we see areas that are, you know, have succumbed much more overtly <laughs> to the, the post-apocalyptic uh, aesthetic. Well, I mean, in the way of uh, oppressive governments everywhere, they're the places that are run down because they're the places that have been given over to, uh, you know, undesirables. The uh, This is a very cruel movie in a lot of ways. It's a very, like, dark, harsh movie. But I don't think there's anything darker in this entire film than the, like, PA announcements, the recorded PA announcements in Bex Hill just chanting over and over and over, you know, Britain is sheltering you, Britain is feeding you, Britain is providing you with all of your needs. Don't give in to terrorism. As these people are literally forced through like a wire rat maze at gunpoint into, you know, a, a series of, of broken down hovels where they have nothing and are preying on each other. The big brotherness, you know, there's there's an element of 1984 to all of this on top of all of the other influences, all of the other layers and levels. I think Bex Hill also kind of like has an Escape from New York vibe where it's like, oh yeah, we're just letting you loose in here and we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Well, we don't care. You know, what, whatever happens from this point on, we don't care. Unless you start to resist a little too hard, in which case, you know, we will violently mow down anybody and everybody indiscriminately. There's the we don't care attitude that leads to the city streets being so, you know, filthy and everything just kind of having a, you know, the edges have been worn off and everything's crumbling kind of feel extends even further just into the the governance of, you know, people in general. There's a lot of fairly casual cruelty and selfishness um, on display here. But I think there's also just a lot of apathy, a lot of, of weariness, a lot of sense of there's no point in standing up against the system, even the, for the people who are part of the system. It doesn't seem like anybody's enjoying themselves. You know, it doesn't seem like except um, Theo's cousin, you know, living high above it all in, uh, in his little elite tower mm-hmm. full of art. I would say there's another person who's if kind of treats it as his time has come. That's Sid, the um, the soldier, uh, oh, right. the, the sort of yeah, who who played by Peter Mullen, who who uh, it's just really like he's a man made for these times and he's going to to live it to the fullest, and it's really kind of terrifying. What, what is with uh, Sid referring to himself in the third person? Uh, sometimes you just got it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's Peter Mullen just doing work. Yeah, <laughs> he's awesome in that film. <laughs> he's always awesome. Yeah, he really is. 
I mean, he's a he's a real highlight here, but he's also, you know, kind of a terrifying creep. And that that third person twitch, I think, is just it's just one of those these little character beats in a film that's full of kind of fascinating, strange little character beats that uh, just like really makes him distinctive without necessarily putting too much of a point on it. There's not some huge symbolism to him referring to himself in third person. He's just he's an oddity in kind of a world of oddities. See, I would say there is something significant because I think I think when people do refer to themselves in the third person, they they're really kind of trumpeting their own importance. You know, I mean that that's kind of like a that becomes almost like that's like a cliche with athletes or or celebrities or something. If they start referring to themselves in the third person, they're kind of putting themselves, you know, in the center of the narrative. And and if you're in his position, if you're a, a a cop and you have that kind of power i think the third person is uh, use of thir- third person is kind of suggestive of that it's like a persona thing too especially in a context like this i think it's believable that someone may might adopt a persona as sid has to kind of help them cope or allow them to cope with the role they play in this horrible new world yeah i think it's probably easier to do the atrocious things he does if you can if you put some distance between yourself and whoever's doing it which is you know also yourself yeah i just i think of it more as as a distancing thing than a self-aggrandizing thing like almost a indicative of somebody who doesn't necessarily see themselves as themselves if that makes sense somebody Mm -hmm. who feels like they're an observer in their life whether that's out of, you know, admiration from themselves as, uh, you know, a prominent politician who does that all the time uh, might be might be said to do or, you know, hear a man that's uh, performing atrocities for profit. So this is obviously very deeply critical of right wing totalitarian instincts, but also kind of makes, it makes villains of the radicals who, who killed Julian and the fishes who, who killed Julian and want to use the baby for their own purposes. Does this film have coherent politics? I mean, I think it's the politics of cynicism. Like essentially what it's saying is that it, it's the old philosophy of like a person is smart, people are dumb. In this case, it's a person can be can be good and can be kind, but the people are evil. And I think you maybe see that most strongly in, you know, that that indelible climactic sequence when everybody is capable of individually shutting down in the middle of a war for a moment because of their own reaction to something. But the second they start thinking, you know, sectarian again, the second they're drawn back into the group uh, activity that they're doing, which is trying to murder each other, uh, suddenly it's all dropped. Suddenly it's all ignored. And I feel like there's a lot here of, you know, individual figures like Miriam or the woman in the uh, the camp are capable of moments of bravery and, and kindness and altruism and caring. But organized groups uh, have a tendency to kind of eat themselves. Organized groups have a tendency to portray themselves and to portray the individuals that, that comprise them. Well, because you have to kind of consider what the overall goal is is i mean when you know if it's um i mean to be, play the devil's advocate for this radical group i mean the the style is extremely important and, and it is extremely important as a potential you know political symbol that happens to be theirs um so but i mean that, is, that doesn't necessarily forgive you know so the, the treachery i guess involved in in uh one uh 
one uh, person killing it, killing another to take power. But I don't know. It, you know, I, I was I was kind of thinking about that about about how it makes villains of 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 the radicals. I, at least I think it does so in a subtle way in a way that you can actually you can see the motives you can see how important it is for turning public opinion for turning uh this conflict their their way that they would that they would take the actions that they do but i don't know but it's also maybe just about how politics have has a way particularly wartime politics have a way of flattening perception of individual of humans you know of, of making us like uh, uh of thinking about humans as, as, as symbols of of uh, and as disposable or as uh, things that to be to be used as thinking of actions of murder as being productive i mean that I, all that stuff sort of comes into play yeah it's it's funny too even after all, all the alpha things we see him do at the end of like you know i still think you know, well, the baby at least would be better off with Chiwetel Ejiofor than, than, than the British government. But still, uh, it is it is he does commit some pretty awful acts along the way. Yeah, there's the question of whether whether the child would be. I mean, I, the fact that he's willing to you know betray and murder somebody who's close to him because he he knows that she's a better leader. You know, there's there's no reason if he's got so many other people within the group on his side that he couldn't overrule her if he was willing mm. to do it politically. But instead, he decides that the most expedient way, the the cleanest and easiest way, is to murder her. Or really to send other people to take all of the risks and murder her. And I, I don't know. I, That's I, leadership, Tasha. I, I, think, I think Scott is creepily soft on this whole justification for wholesale betrayal and murder. And I'm not getting into a, a political uh, group with him anytime soon. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not, I don't murder people. I'm fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you send other uh, people around of. to murder yeah, people. It's called, it's called delegation, Tasha. Yeah, yeah. You keep saying that. Delegation, leadership. Is, is somebody knocking at my door? Should I, should I go get that? <laughs> just just curious there uh, i'd leave it i'd definitely leave it <laughs> it's a burrito patrol we're gonna be uh <laughs> check it check to see if any lettuce down the lettuce way in there i mean i do think that the the coherent politics here are essentially that organizations have a tendency to live by causes and not by individual what's best for any given individual person but i think there's also a degree to which you know as many genres as this movie touches on there is an element of horror movie to it and part of a horror movie is how do you isolate the protagonists you know how do you how do you raise the stakes by making what they're going through terrifying and one of the first ways is you don't have a like powerful well-organized, well-armed organization devoted to keeping them safe and meeting their needs. You know, you put them in a situation where they can't trust anybody. So, you know, part of the the story is just moving it forward by by isolating them and, and putting them in a position where they're on their own and they have to find their own safety. It's interesting to Quran talked about how people that were in, were inspiring this at the time were, were people like Slavov Zizek and, and Naomi Klein. There is a sort of distrust of everything uh, kind of at the heart of this film that, that perhaps that is that's where they, they still find common ground. Ultimately, this does end up being a movie about sacrifice for a cause. You know, ultimately, it does end up being a movie 
about believing in something bigger than yourself and, and being willing to give your life for it, quite literally. So, you know, there there is there's a a struggling, uh, sad idealism at the heart of all of this cynicism. Like, I don't think it's fundamentally a story about how humanity is irredeemable. It's it's just kind of a story about like individual effort and how, you know, d- whatever institution lets you down, you have to do your best personally. Like you you can one person can change the world. And we see that in a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different people and the choices that they make. It's, you know, it is a very idealistic story in a, a very dark, sad sort of way. And and with that darkness and hopefulness, there is there's quite a bit of humor. Most most of it quite dark, especially in the beginning. Like I mean, I find the baby Diego stuff really uh, quite quite funny. As even though you know it's a hor- I'm a horrible person for laughing at the death of poor D- baby Diego. I guess, but uh, <laughs> but the idea of the world's youngest person. I don't know the whole. The whole it's yeah. almost like a Monty Python sketch, kind of in a way. Well, especially when they're like the new world's youngest person is so and so. Who's like just know, exactly as old, except like two seconds? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, two seconds older. Her baby Diego was kind of kind of a jerk anyway, though. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, I guess, a contrast. I mean, there are a bunch of different kinds of humor in the film. I, I think there's a very mordant humor to Clive trying to beg off work because he's oh so very very moved by baby Diego's death. But that's just a very different sense of humor from uh, the the humor of like Michael Caine's pull my finger gag that he keeps pulling out. Or the humor of the car getaway in, in neutral, like roll, roll the slow car getaway, mm, you know? Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, there which, was a little Keystone Copsness to that. Yeah, which I, I uh, noticed on this viewing replicates the car door knocking out Charlie Hunnam uh, move that happens in the <laughs> uh, much more explosive uh, one-take chase that, that precedes it. So there's a fun little echo happening there. In a much more lo-fi <laughs> context, but yeah, like it, as you were saying, Tasha, it's just like there's a lot of different textures of humor of varying degrees of bleakness strewed throughout. You also get that, uh, like the weird little bit of banter when uh, Charlie Hunnam is is facing down Clive Owen in the the van and threatening him, and Clive Owen just says, uh, "You know, you've got really bad breath." And there's <laughs> there's a beat, and then Hunnam's like, "No, I don't." <laughs> you know, the the bravado that ignores the threat and uh, comes back with a little piece of banter is kind of funny to begin with. And then the guy crumbling under it and, and revealing something about himself. Like, that's that's a fun little tweak right there. And I think it's kind of important to the film's message in a way to kind of have all of these different textures just to kind of express the fullness of humanity, I think, because you can get yourself, you can make a movie like this. That's, that's a typical sort of dystopic science fiction world and get, get completely immersed in how bleak it is. But you also kind of have to show why, why it's, why, you know, humanity might be worth saving and, in in how these, how people, individuals can't be flattened by the politics of the day or by the conflicts of the day that they're, that, that there's still some qualities that make them special. So it's, it's good that the film is able to kind of, ha- you know, contain all of those things while still having a, a tone that of course is quite serious. 
Yeah, and sometimes the the right kind of humor can really set up a a gutting moment of emotion. You know, the, the little running gag about uh, Claire Hope coming up with new names for her baby, and mm. uh, like Clive Owen <laughs> flinching Probably. at each one of them in turn, <laughs> and and you know they they have their little moments of. Uh, it's such a low stakes thing compared to 99% of what happens in the movie, like what she names her baby. But, you know, of course, it all comes down in the end to this, you know, very, very sweet moment. That's also a moment about continuity, uh, a moment about the future, like one of the first, maybe the only time in the movie that we're allowed to think about the future as something other than either a political manipulation or just trying to survive to the next second. Tasha, I could have sworn uh, you were about to talk about uh, Jasper's death scene as an amalgam of humor and emotion, just because like Jasper is such a a jester figure for, uh, you know, most of the time we know him, but also one that can deliver, you know, the film's thesis statement, (laughs) you, you know, about about faith and his you know, his final moments, it's it's the damn pull my finger again, but it's just in such a gutting context now. You know, it, it is that sort of like continuity, that r- running joke that takes on an entirely different feeling in its final punchline, such as it is. Kane's so fun in this movie too, and it's like not your typical Kane character either. Uh, I, I w- I'd love to see him, you know, loosen up a little bit more like that in, in some other roles. Yeah, this is hey, his his death in this movie is just always no matter how many times I watch this film, it's always gutting, you know, because it's just um, the the film lets go of its adults one by one. It It's very it's very much the Red Wedding in um, in Game of Thrones. When Julian dies, it's just kind of a moment of we lose our leadership and our organization and uh, like our our connection to the past and are slowly beginning to rekindle hope for the future all at the same time. But we also lose our connection uh, to the, the people who are supposed to save us, the people who are supposed to give us hope. And the whole plan falls apart with her death. And then we move on to, to Michael Caine's death. And that it just mm, it's the death of humor. And it's the shifting. Mm. It's the, the film signaling that we're moving into um, a new gear where there isn't room anymore for joking about strawberry cough or for the tenderness that he shows his wife, uh, who you know is, is catatonic. There are so many moments in this movie that are just surprising to me every time I rewatch it. And one of the big ones is when Jasper chases uh, everybody off and says, I'm going to stall them. And he he does it with a very sort of lighthearted, you know, I'll catch up with you. It'll be fine kind of way. And the second they're out the door, he gently sits down with his wife. He He puts on a meaningful song and he kills his wife and his dog. And you don't see it on screen, but Quran just leaves you with this long, quiet sequence of the two of them together, and you can feel what's going to happen, and you can feel the weight of the decision and of of the moment and of the responsibility that he bears, and of his understanding of like why he has to do this and what he knows is going to happen to him. And then you just kind of cut to the the fishes closing in and him coming outside and somebody going to the house and saying, oh, there's a dead woman and a dead dog inside. Like the this moment of just supreme personal sacrifice and, and tragedy and again, responsibility 
is all off screen and then you just get that one line aftermath of it and it's in a movie filled with with devastating things that are just incredibly well communicated uh that's that's one of the most one of the most painful one of the most powerful i love that moment as a piece of craft and i hate it as a viewer Speaking of, uh, can we talk briefly about how many dogs are in this movie? It's, it's a very, a very dog-heavy movie, and purposefully so, because I think it's not hard to make the leap that in this society, uh, without where people cannot have children, they have taken to having dogs around a lot. And there is just like a constant soundtrack of barking dogs in, in this film. And pretty much every new character we meet has a dog. And one of Theo's characteristics is that dogs like him and gravitate toward him. And that is, I think, you know, meant to be a, a signal that he is our, our hero in, in, mm. in this story. But I just, you know, that's a, just another part of, of the texture of this world that, you know, I think has a little more meaning than it necessarily uh, appears at first glance. Well, I think that film makes a leap for you too. When you in the background, there's those advertisements for this season's clothes for your dog. You know, <laughs> like it's just like there's no kids around, kids to dress up anymore, so people are dressing up their dogs. Mm-hmm. Have any of you read the novel this was based on? No, no, I understand it's quite different. It's it's radically different, uh, not just in story and in content. You know, the the story apart from Theo as the main character and and the kind of basic setup. Uh, almost has no relation to the movie. But one of the big elements that stretches through it is that idea of, you know, this that story takes place in a, a version of this world that feels a lot more settled um, in its, its weariness and cynicism, but like a lot less crumbling. But the embrace of animals as children uh, is a, a big thing in that book that honestly skeeved me out pretty hard there's just there are a lot of descriptions of people wheeling around small dogs uh wearing like bonnets and onesies in prams and showing them off to each other or uh you know talking to each other about their kittens as if they were babies that sort of thing it's very deliberately quite creepy I'm suddenly very aware of the fact that, Patasha, before you got on the call, I was showing off my dog wearing his pajamas. <laughs> well, he gets sleepy. He needs his, his sleepy clothes. He's cold. Also, it's cold. He's cold all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a pram for uh, for either no. of your dogs? No, but I do have a backpack to carry them around in. Oh. No, that's, that's different. That's just togetherness. Well, one of the, the most memorable details details of the film is the long takes. There, there are a couple of them. There's the the car attack scene early, and then there's the uh, the uh, move through the um, the Bexhill prison later on. You know, I, I know there's 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 some people who listen to this podcast who are kind of allergic to, to long takes, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I find those scenes really effective. How about, how about everybody else? I had my big emotional break with Mike D'Angelo over the uh, the Children <laughs> no, of Men we're, column. We're just going to go ahead and mention him by Yes, day, we're going to. Hi, by hi Mike. Uh, I understand you're a listener. Uh, yeah, I, I never understood his take on that. Like, he, he wrote very... Um, Mike, come yeah. on the show. <laughs> there you go. He wrote like very compellingly and uh, with with obvious, you know, belief in in the rightness of the argument that these kind of long takes are are basically just a trick and that they're a trick that doesn't actually work because 
they're meant to mimic uh, the the way your eyes work, just in terms of like you're you're sitting in a scene and looking around, and and the world doesn't take edit edit cuts and edit breaks. And then his point was, yeah, but the cinematography doesn't actually mimic how the eye works. And I I just never saw that as the point. I will confess that it tends to take me out of a, a scene somewhat when I realize that I'm looking at a, a ten minute oneer that's just a ridiculous act of coordination. Yeah, when I when I think about something like the Atonement Beach sequence or uh, you know the the opening sequence of Athena uh, or the the climactic scene here, I can get taken out of it just by thinking about the coordination involved, but I don't mind. You know, I I enjoy craft and this kind of craft it's it's like it, I mean, it makes me want to see the film again, like four more times. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I tend to get taken out of the craft of movies by the narrative. And I kind of appreciate something that even while I'm watching a story for the first time, takes me out of the narrative and makes me appreciate the craft. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, exactly the the kind of argument you'd make against long takes of the sort that you see in this film of like the, the moment that you become conscious of of the camera and, and, and the bravura you know, choreography that's sort of behind the sequence, then it's like, what am I watching here? Am I, do I, am I supposed to care about the sequence or am I, am I, or am I just engaged with how awesome uh, the technical uh, cr- uh, ability uh, to pull the sequence off was? But to me, this is a movie where those moments really work. I, I, I mean, I, there's a reason why there are long takes in movies, you know, it, 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 they, they do give you a, a cohesive sense of space, a cohesive sense of movement of, uh, you know, you, you feel like, you know, I, I think in, in this movie, you, you get immersed more immersed in the scene than you might be you might be if there were if if it were cut together in a more traditional way you feel much more present in that in the in the space and and you know you're moving through that space with along with the camera i find it exhilarating i find it exhilarating in such, such interesting contrasting ways too i mean the, the the you know the attack on the cars is you know the ambush is really exciting and, and visceral and then and then the and then later when you get a bexel you're really just getting a sense of the place it's just such a such a strong on the ground impression of what it's like to kind of just walk through that space in that moment and and uh I, you know i think so i think they serve different purposes and and um i i find them thrilling and not really all that distracting and i think it's important to note that all of these, you know, single take sequences. There's a, a, another one uh, to to briefly mention. I think it's the shortest of them, but it is quite long. Still, is when Key gives birth, and we follow them for uh, a, a few minutes as well. Mm, and yeah. I think in all three of those, there is a major emotional beat that happens within this long take. Obviously, uh, Julian being killed in in the car, the birth in, in, in that other one, and then um, sort of the the panic of the the separation uh, of Key and Theo in the Bexhill sequence. So for me, anyway, I think, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the potential for being taken out of it, like, in all of those cases, I feel like there is just such a strong emotional core keeping me tethered to what's happening on screen that it keeps me from disengaging and getting to well, I wonder how, how this is is done, you know? I, I feel like that's something that 
I tend to think about more in hindsight uh, with this film than in the moment when I'm watching it. Because I think in the moment it is like, yes, it's a it's a ride, you know, and like I, I know when those sequences are coming, I'm like, yeah, here it, it's happening. But I don't think my reaction as I'm watching is like examining the bravura filmmaking. It's being in that moment and just feeling the emotions of that moment that the filmmaking is is making me feel. Yeah, um, Mike's thing was that, you know, the camera can't mimic the eye because the eye blinks and these sequences are supposed to, you know, make you feel like you're not blinking. But to me, this this kind of sequence was always about feeling like you're not breathing, mm-hmm. feeling like yeah. there's there's never a moment where you're cutting away from the moment where you're taking a breath to reconsider the fact, you know, there's there's a great deal of artifice that necessarily goes into crafting one of these super long scenes, especially when they're in the middle of something like a combat. But at the same time, you know, every time you you cut from one moment to the other, you're reminding everybody like this is an artificial uh, contrivance, like this is a story. We're only seeing the the high moments, the the beats that we want you to see. These kind of wonders that drop you into a moment and then just carry you through it don't give you that kind of respite, don't give you that kind of breath. And the, especially the Bex Hill uh, one take sequence, I, I feel like it's just all about never feeling like you have a, a moment to catch your breath, feeling like you're there with uh, Clive Owen's character, being immersed in the situation where there's just no time to, to rest or think or breathe or hold still, uh, even for a moment. Scott was talking about how these scenes give us a, a tremendous sense of space, but I also think they give us just a tremendous sense of time. The, you tend to get to the end of one and think, oh my God, all of that happened within seven minutes, eight minutes. Like every, the, the world can change in seven minutes or eight minutes or, or considerably less. And in both of the really big winners here, as Genevieve says, they're, they're both big story moments where the world changes for the characters. Yeah, the blinking thing, it's like none of these shots are actual POV shots. This is, this is the camera. This is just the camera's eye, not not the human eye that's that it's trying to mimic, right? Yeah, again, I, I never bought the argument. <laughs> these aren't actual POV shots. I mean, if you, want, you know, if you want to talk about blinking, you would have to be referencing a, a situation where the camera is supposed to function as a single person's perspective. But camera eye doesn't blink. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it becomes very, very literal, very obvious here uh, at the point where blood gets spattered on the camera uh, yeah, lens. That's a little, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is, this, there's something, there's some part of the, of the kind of this aesthetic of this film that is very much of its time of just like, uh, of when we were seeing a lot of, a lot more kind of handheld, shaky cam to project realism type of gestures you know i think you you know your green grasses were coming up at this time as well and and uh we're getting a little bit more of that kind of you are you know that kind of style to project visceral activity does anyone know i have more information about the blood uh splatter on the camera like yeah it's in the interview where it was it's, yeah oh. it was kind of an accident they were going You're, to do a digital blood, <laughs> blood splatter during the julian moore uh, death scene and they were going to add that later and then, then this happened and uh lubeski uh said this is this should have happened and like the whole thing is again it's a good interview the whole thing is crazy where they had like something like 13 or 14 days to shoot that and they got to day 12 and they hadn't shot anything yet. It was all <laughs> set up and prep and like trying to figure out how they're going to do things. So it sounds like, it, and they can only shoot 
at sunrise or sunset to get the right lighting and just you know just insane filmmaking uh stories uh, it's you know it's good stuff oh speaking of lighting we we really can't let this film go without talking about the lighting in this movie uh, my god this this is one of the most beautiful movies to portray like one of the most ugly settings imaginable mm. the the light in this movie is just spectacular and again every time i rewatch it i find myself just caught on the weight of sunlight in Clive Owen's hair as he's ducking under a doorway to get into that classroom where he talks to Miriam or the way the light filters through the kind of grubby glass into uh, Michael Caine's pot farm. The, the light in this movie is just unbelievable and incredibly striking. Well, in the last shots, or the the last shots, I guess, of them on the boat, surrounded by smoke, and the you know the suggestion of bombing, and in, in, in the distance, like it shouldn't work, <laughs> you know. And the fact that it does is because of the lighting. Lubeski, kind of the best, right? <laughs> Lubeski. <laughs> Well, on, on that note, we'll, we'll wind this discussion down. We'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this film and, you know, lighting and dogs wearing clothes and anything else <laughs> in, you know, that you want to talk about related to this or in the world of film in general. You can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. Before we get to it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the next picture show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, they've just released an episode previewing the films of 2023, which I'm looking forward to listening to, and, and who couldn't use that kind of information. Uh, as for our podcast, we're still getting some responses to our Megan and Child's Play episodes, including one that suggested different pairing. Tasha, can you read that? Sure. Charles writes, I'm probably too late. I'm sorry. Yes, you are too late. We already recorded this episode. But now that I've seen Megan, the obvious pairing is with Big Hero 6, where a boy loses his brother and learns to grieve through a learning robot sworn to protect him while exploring the often gray morality that comes with being human. The two films could be more similar in theme, but they're so opposite in approach. (laughs) <laughs> this is true. I, that would have been a fun episode. That's a finding Dory memento level uh, <laughs> pairing to, to throw it back to one of my all time favorites we did. What, what do we wait? Oh, right. She doesn't remember stuff. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So you Can you relate, Scott? Weirdly, weirdly yes. ironic that you had a problem remembering that. Oh, I know. I, I, I yes. Why, I why don't we spend more time thinking about what like Disney or Pixar movie, like what animated, uh, very family friendly movie should we pair with? Uh, actually, is there is there a good cartoon to pair with uh, The Last of Us that we should have done instead of Children of Men? Well, uh, let's get to that. But I was just thinking, you know, just do a little on air brainstorming. We're talking about trying something to pair with Cocaine Bear. Brave, obviously, right? No? Okay. No, I'm right there you. with you. I'm yeah. liking it. Wait, they had another. Disney had another bear thing. Brother bear. Brother bear. I never saw it. That's wasn't, wasn't there a country bears uh, jamboree country bears? movie oh, at one point? <laughs> Just the country bears. Country bears has one absolutely incredible scene that you should see on YouTube or something if you haven't. Uh, Christopher Walken. It, out. it involves Christopher, Christopher Walken. Walken de- Christopher Walken destroying 
beautiful scale models of the country bear <laughs> to like hall uh jamboree uh, hall or whatever and, and so pretending good. to practice his uh shock and remorse at the terrible accident yes. that has befallen yep. country bear hall this is why we see everything this is why you, you just can't let the country bears <laughs> slip by without watching it is so you can see a scene like that i really liked uh similarly there's a there's a sequence in disney's brother bear that just blows my mind for animation that you can also find uh, on youtube um, if you search brother bear transformation there's a sequence the gist is that uh, a native kills a bear and is transformed by the spirits into a bear so he can see what, you know, what he's done. So he can understand the weight of what it means to take a life. And it's, uh, you know, as as with so many Disney films, taken from a fable, you know, a, a traditional fable. But that the transformation sequence is not only gorgeous on an animation level, it's, um, oof, it's something I don't think I've ever uh, written about um, but it's just this incredibly moving. The song that plays is in Inuit, I think, and is performed by like a Bulgarian women's choir. And it's gorgeous, but it's also packed with meaning that the character doesn't understand because he doesn't speak the language of the spirits. And he he doesn't realize that they're comforting him and trying to explain to him. And I, I think it's just, it's a, a beautiful sequence. There's very little cocaine in it, though. Almost none. <laughs> that seems like the only thing I remember about that movie. Is it, did, did, am I missing something? Is, is the rest of it any good? or or? Okay, so almost immediately after that, it just like incredibly painful, powerful, moving sequence where this, this man who's lost a family member and is in like an agony of guilt and remorse is taken up by the spirits and, and transformed into uh, the creature that he hunted. He drops into a cartoon sequence uh, involving Bob, Bob and Ray as yes. uh, Moose. Comic That's Moose. right. It's got some good uh, comedic talent in, in the voice cast. But, oh, yeah. uh, it just oh, well. becomes a very different movie after that. Just, yeah. just instantly, we're we're done. We're done with the big emotional thing, and we're on to like Bob and Ray Moose comedy. Very weird. So, you're you're I, really convincing me on this cocaine bear pairing with Brother Bear. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm all for Brave. I, I think a, the Brave pairing is really going to work. But what is more transformative than you know consuming a lot of cocaine? I mean. Like, <laughs> Um, really you, you know maybe it's the spirits that drop the cocaine in the middle of the forest so the bear can be transformed into its most vital and personal self hmm all right we should take this off air this, this stuff's too good to share with the listeners before we do it so wait wait what what is the last of us cartoon pairing is it just the sequence in fantasia with the dancing mushrooms i mean well, yeah, okay that's something wally is closest in some ways i guess but Ooh, I can see that. I can see you making an argument for that. Way more space ballet in Wally than in Last of Us, though. Yeah, that's true. Also missing a, a pater- I feel like you need a, a paternal element there that is not really there. There's more of a, a romance element in Wally. True. Uh, but um, before we uh, move on, and we have strayed far away from from Charles's letter, but it was really just a prompt, I, I think. But I just want to say, Big Hero Six good movie i like mm-hmm. that i would have liked to have revisited that movie although maybe a little recent for for our purposes yeah but you know consider this a age. recommendation let, let, <laughs> see what happens when the, when the next sight and sound poll comes out <laughs> see if it breaks in <laughs> Not like child's be- play right yeah, yeah. 
people don't know what classic films look like apparently <laughs> I, I most i mostly remember that i mean i remember big hero six pretty vividly but i always associate it with my daughter uh, it was a period of my daughter's life when she would if music was playing especially like in the closing credits she'd just get up and start dancing so she starts gets up and starts dancing over the closing credits of that film so yeah forever yeah. tied with that particular memory uh but before <laughs> we get too slappily sentimental here uh we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll visit a probably even more nightmarish world than the England of Children of Men, the America of The Last of Us. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcast of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when a new episodes drop. Until next week, take a moment and mourn for baby Diego. Bless the beast and the children give them shelter from a